0: Please be seated. Good evening to you. Hosea chapter 12 tonight. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we come now to conclude, God willing, uh, the book of Hosea this evening. Just by way of review, just uh, for a moment, we do remember that um, just as with the imagery that we're very familiar with in the New Testament in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ as Christians. We are likened to the Bride of Christ. Uh, He is the Groom and we are the Bride. The imagery in the Old Testament is that uh, God the Father uh, is the Husband and Israel uh, is the Wife. And they were wed together, so to speak, by covenant. As any couple is uh, married and wedded, there's always a covenant that is made between the two. And the covenant that united uh, God and Israel was the covenant that God gave to Moses called the Law of Moses. And at this time in Israel's history, the northern kingdom of Israel, they have violated uh, their vows to God in in the way uh, that Gomer or the most uh, disgraceful harlot could ever violate the vows of a marriage. And, uh, And in their spiritual adultery through idolatry, but then also in the breaking of all of these various laws of the laws of Moses that they had committed to keep. And so they hadn't kept the covenant. And, uh, and we made a covenant, so to speak. It's a new covenant. It's in Jesus' blood. But when we became Christians, our commitment was now to follow Him that He would be our Savior, that He would be our Lord, that we were done with our own lordship in our own life, and we were choosing now uh, to follow Him and to obey Him and to be a chaste, uh, a chaste virgin, a bride uh, to Jesus Christ uh, Himself. And so the same kind of a commitment is made to us, and it's equally serious to break that kind of commitment and covenant with God Uh, even in the New Testament. And so God continues His charges now against the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Again, the setting is a a divorce court where He is laying out His charges against Israel, all of the grounds that He has for a divorce uh, to be done with her, to never have anything to do with her again. The case that He's laying is absolutely watertight. Not that He's interested in a divorce, but to show us how easily and how justified he would be in abandoning them for their unfaithfulness. And yet the marvel of the book of Hosea is that he does not do that. He never gives up uh, on them. And they're going to take some pretty serious medicine for them to turn back and take their vows to God seriously. And God knew how to deliver that to them as well. So he declares there in verse 1 of chapter 12, Ephraim feeds on the wind. Ephraim, again, is, uh, was the largest uh, tribe of the, uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel, and so the uh, northern kingdom is often referred to in Hosea by uh, the term Ephraim. She feeds on uh, the wind. She pursues the east wind. Uh, he daily increases, lies, and desolations, also they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. And so God warns the northern kingdom of Israel, they're trying to do everything to secure against their future in a dangerous world, except to repent and to turn back to God, which is the only solution for uh, for that. Again, if God is your problem, only God is your solution. So they decide it's a dangerous world. We will gain these treaties in order to protect ourselves. And and with the superpowers of, of the age at that time, with Assyria, which was growing as a world power, and also with the perennial power of Egypt. And so they made these treaties. They worked the two nations against one another. They would say one thing to the Assyrians, they would say another thing to the Egyptians, trying to get the best deal. Until And what they were doing was speaking lies in their negotiations. And all of this cleverness, rather than just turning back to God and getting right with God, and then dwelling in the safety of of His promises. And so He said these uh, attempts to make a covenant with the Assyrians and then trying to seal a covenant with Egypt by way of oil, it is all the pursuing of the wind, and it's all based upon uh, lies. It will not uh, uh, profit them uh, at all. And the Lord also brings a charge against Judah. So here He adds, the southern kingdom of Judah to the charges he's making. So uh, even though Judah was not as far along in their progression of wickedness as Israel was, he includes them now in bringing his charge against both of them. And the Lord brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. So Jacob, that's a new kind of a word that he's using here. Remember back in in chapter 11, when uh, God began to reminisce with the northern kingdom of Israel over His history with the Jewish people. And He talked about the time, it's kind of like He's going through a photo album. And, uh, and so, He remembers as He sees the days when He drew her out of uh, Egypt, when she became a nation, kind of in, in her birth. In those 400 years in Egypt, she went from being just kind of a glorified large clan of 70 people to now becoming a nation that numbered in the millions. And so he talks about how he delivered her out of Egypt and kind of looks at that picture in their history. And then he looked at another picture in the history where he was teaching her how to walk. And you remember that uh, last week. And he's kind of going through the photo album. And he comes to the photo album, and the place in the album, in terms of, of the history with uh, the Jewish people, to that section of, of their history that had to do with Jacob. And Jacob was one of the great patriarchs of, of Israel and remains one of the great patriarchs of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, fame. And so he introduces Jacob here. And he will punish Jacob. He calls the northern kingdom of Israel Jacob here, according to his ways, according to his deeds. He will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. And in his uh, strength, he struggled with God. You might remember in uh, Genesis chapter 32, I believe it is, is the account concerning uh, Jacob really toward the end of his struggling with God when he spent a night at the city uh, of Bethel. Uh, Not yet a city, but it was a city at this time, Hosea is writing. But Jacob was a very clever man. And uh, he was a go getter. His name means heel catcher because he was clinging on to his twin brother's heel as they both kind of came out of the womb. Talk about a nightmare delivery. And, uh, but he was holding on to the, womb, uh, the, the heel in the idea of tripping up his brother, trying to get ahead of his brother. And, and he's very, very gifted, very determined, very industrious man. But he was a self made man. And uh, and so, his name was Jacob and he'll catch her. And then you might remember in chapter 32 of Genesis, as he's done all of this wheeling and dealing to get his two wives from uh, Laban, and then the, all of the uh, flocks, and the, and the spotted ones, and the speckled, and the ones that were a complete color, and everywhere he thinks all of his blessings are occurring because of all of his shenanigans, all of his uh, things that he's doing, and he doesn't realize that God's putting up with all of that, and it's God that is blessing him. But he was a heel catcher. He was a guy that would trip you up. He was a guy that would get ahead of you. bit of a con man is what he was. But very, very industrious. And then finally he had a situation in his life where he leaves Laban, he leaves Syria to come back to the promised land as God had called him to do. But he had burnt bridges with his brother Esau who the last time he had seen Esau, Esau said, the next time I see you, you're a dead man. So he has his uh, father-in-law wanting to kill him coming from his rear, and he has Esau, who he believes wants to kill him, coming uh, to the, uh, the front in the direction that he's heading in, and yet God has told him to go in this direction. And in the night before he's going to meet his brother, Esau, with the idea that he's going to slaughter all of us after how I've treated him, uh, Jacob went over the brook, over the brook and, and he wrestled with God all night long. until and, and Jacob was so determined, so strong an individual, that God had to pop his hip out of joint in order to get his attention and break him and humble him to uh, follow God. And to quit depending upon himself in, in life and all of the messes that he was making of things in doing so. And in that particular place, he's praying and praying out, calling out to God. He's wrestling with none other than Jesus Christ there and, he, and he, he, he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then God proceeded to bless him by not only taking his hip out of joint, but then renaming him. And he renamed him Israel. And the name Israel means governed by God, ruled by God. And here at this particular crisis in his life, he went from being the con man, the manipulator, the guy that was always working things, to now coming to the end of that, and now, uh, in coming to the end of himself, now becoming governed by God. And it's the greatest blessing that anyone can ever experience in life. When we lose that fight with God, when we lose that that battle with Him, we think our will is the best thing. We can't think of a better plan for our life than the one that we have planned for our life. And we will fight to the death to accomplish it. And God has a plan that is infinitely greater than anything that we can come up with. But He's got to pull our hip out of joint or something along the way in order that we would become governed by God and then enter into the fullness of the life that God has for us. And so here is the northern kingdom of Israel using the name Israel for their nation, which means governed by God. And they were nothing like that. They weren't even remotely governed by God. They didn't deserve the name at all. And so God calls them Jacob, you're heel catchers, you're con men, you're strivers, you're manipulators, and you don't deserve, if there's any name that your country ought to be called, that northern kingdom ought to be called, you should be stripped of the name uh, Israel, and you should be given the name Jacob. You're not worthy of it. And this is what God is communicating. He's going to punish Jacob, the northern kingdom, according to his ways, according to his deeds. God will recompense him. And again, speaking of Jacob from the book of Genesis, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, and he prevailed. And again, uh, we see at the end of verse 3, he str- in his strength he struggled with God and then uh, no verses in in the originals related to the bible yes he struggled with the angel and prevailed which gives us insight into that uh, wrestling match that occurred all night long there in genesis and that is that he wrestled with none other than jesus christ himself it wasn't an angel but it was god it was jesus himself and that's why you see the name angel the, the term angel uh, in in uh, capitals, he wrestled with the Lord uh, Jesus, one of Jesus's uh, theophanies or Christophanies, as they're called, one of his pre-incarnate appearances in the Old Testament. You remember, he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders that um, uh, Abraham uh, saw my day and uh, rejoiced in it, and so he was be, before Abraham was. I am, and he rejoiced to see my day. And so this is—he also appeared to Abraham in, in his history in the Old Testament. And so he struggled with the angel, and he prevailed. How did he prevail? Because he wept and he sought favor from him. That's how we always prevail in surrendering. And uh, but some of us can really be knuckleheads, and it takes a long time for that surrender to occur. And when God wins, we win. Always. Always. When I resist God winning in my life, I am uh, uh, resisting the very best good for my life. And where did God find Him? And, or where did Jacob find the Lord? He found him in Bethel as he was fleeing from Esau. Even before he went to Syria, got his wives, ran into his future father-in-law uh, Laban and all. He had that vision of that ladder going up into heaven and the angels ascending and and descending. And he said, uh, God is uh, y- uh, here of a truth and I did not know it. And and uh, uh, bethel being called the house of god and uh, and jacob found him in bethel and there he that is god spoke to us that is the lord of hosts the lord is his uh, memorable name and uh, and so uh, bethel now this site uh, this kind of a site where uh, there were no inns, there were no hotels for Jacob when he was fleeing from Esau uh, to check into at Bethel. Bethel became named for this particular event. Ultimately, a city grew up around it. When he went to sleep, he put a stone under his head as, as a pillow. But now, all of these years later, uh, Bethel is one of the two main cities of idolatry in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they put one of the golden calves uh, up in the north in Dan, and they put the other in Bethel. They have taken this city with such a rich heritage for them as Jewish people, and now they've made it one of the two great centers for idolatry uh, 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 among them. And he confronts them with what they had turned this sacred place in their history called Bethel into. And so you, by the help of your God, return as He calls on uh, them to repent and to return to God. And even as God had called on Jacob to return to Him and to follow Him, uh, with, with all of, of his heart. And you might remember when Jacob did uh, meet uh, and, and went over the brook Jabok in order to wrestle with the Lord, that immediately after doing that, he called his family together and called everyone to get rid of all of the idols that were uh, among them, that they were carrying with them. Uh, because here he was returning to God wholeheartedly. He was going to do the Christian life, walk with God on God's terms. And so God reminds him of this, so you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy, that is, be merciful to your fellow uh, human being, and justice, do justice before God, and wait on your God continually. So you, by the help of your God, return. And here we see the enormous privilege that it is to be able to repent. I am not giving God any kind of break by repenting. Uh, 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 Repenting, in terms of the blessings of it, are all loaded entirely to us. And it is only the grace of God that allows us to repent. Uh, he's the hound of heaven. If, if He did not draw us and pull us and convict us of sin and, and woo us and do all of the things that He does by His Holy Spirit, we would never repent and turn back. And it's a, it, it's a privilege to uh, return repentance is, and He's letting them know that. And then He likens them to a cunning Canaanite. Deceitful scales are in His hand. And... Uh, he loves to oppress and Ephraim said surely I have become rich I have found wealth for myself and all my labors and they shall find in me no iniquity that is in sin this is the Jacob side of them he was they were becoming wealthy fabulously wealthy Jacob became fabulously wealthy but he wasn't right with God he wasn't where he was supposed to be with God And for Jacob, I mean, as high as the stakes are in all of this related to the northern kingdom of Israel, Jacob's place in Jewish history far greater, far more at stake. Because it was going to be from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Messiah was going to come into the world. It was important that this guy stop playing games with God and playing games with his life and get in line with what God had planned through uh, him. But he, the northern kingdom of Israel, like Jacob for so much of his life, a cunning Canaanite. And uh, for these people to hear as Hosea spoke to them, and he refers to the Jewish people, the northern kingdom of Israel, as cunning Canaanites. Uh, and to refer to a Jew as a Canaanite would have been an absolute affront to them. But that's what they were. They were living on the level of the Canaanites and the other people that lived around them always working the thing for a deal and trying to uh, shaft somebody else in order to get ahead on, on the deal and then look and uh, pat themselves on the back because they'd made the, the best of, uh, of the deal or the situation and their ability to hide their sin in, in doing all of it. And the Lord, uh, again, rebukes them for being far more like Jacob than being like Israel in all of this. But I am the Lord your God. How wonderful is that? but I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. And I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days uh, of the appointed feast. And so he uh, speaks to them and he lets them know that he is their God. And uh, he reminds them uh, of Moses. He reminds them of the fact that uh, he had brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, that he had delivered them Uh, out of Egypt, I've delivered you out of Egypt and yet you continually go back to Egypt. And Egypt is a picture, a type or a picture in the Bible of the world. And our salvation where God delivers us out of the world. And what's the old saying for God? It was far easier for God to remove Israel from Egypt than to remove Egypt from Israel. And that's, that can be true of us as Christians. And so he brought them out of, uh, of the land, out of Egypt, but they were constantly going back to Egypt, back into the world. And so when he speaks about Egypt, his deliverance of them from Egypt, it floods their mind with the parting of the Red Sea. All of the miracles, all of the plagues that were involved in it, the Passover that was in, involved of it, And and God is letting them know that they owe all of their prosperity to Him. All of their freedom, all of their new life, all of their prosperity, they owe uh, continually to Him, and that they would still be in Egypt if it weren't for Him. And again, as we looked at things this morning, what would I still be if it weren't for God in this world, and God coming into my life, and God coming into your life, we owe everything to Him in terms of the prosperity and the blessings of, uh, of our lives. And because of their uh, idolatry, their ungrateful idolatry, God threatens that they'll be driven out of their good land and out into uh, the wilderness. And But I have also spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through uh, the witness of the prophets. God is saying, I sent uh, prophets, I sent uh, visions to you, witness of, of the prophets. In other words, I've warned you, and i warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you. And when this judgment comes upon you, you will never be able to say, I didn't warn you that this was coming. And I can stand before you, and I think you can have the same testimony in it related to your life, is that every time I have uh, stumbled and fallen uh, that every time God warned me, He warned me ahead of time, hey buckaroo, you're getting too big for your britches, or don't get involved in that situation, you're not my person in that situation, or whatever it might be. And, and And what it does is, you do that a number of times and then what happens? Oh, I pay attention to that voice now in my life, like never before, fool me once. Uh, so this is how we learn, and and this was uh, the, the the situation. No one can ever look back and say God was unfair. God didn't warn me. Uh, he does. And though Gilead has idols, they are uh, surely they are vanity. They are nothing. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altar shall be uh, heaps in furrows on the f- of the field. They're going to be uh, destroyed by the Assyrians and they're going to be left as a ruin. Jacob, again back to Jacob, fled the country of Syria. Israel served. Uh, for a spouse. He uses now this, uh, both names for Jacob here Jacob and Israel. Israel served for a spouse and for a wife, he tended sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought uh, Is- uh, Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet, he was preserved. Ephraim provoked God uh, to anger most bitterly. Therefore, his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return His approach upon Him. And so God declares, I sent My prophets to warn you in the same way that I sent Moses to speak to you in delivering you uh, uh, from, uh, from Egypt. And so God always protected His people. He protected uh, Jacob from Laban. He protected Moses from Pharaoh. But now the northern kingdom of Israel has gone so far that now God is no, no longer able to offer His protection to them lest they would misunderstand it as being Him uh, being okay with their sin and with their idolatry. And then in chapter 13, He heads into kind of His final indictment against them when Ephraim spoke uh, trembling. He exalted Himself in Israel, and, uh, but when He uh, offended through uh, Baal worship, uh, He uh, died. And uh, now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images. And idols of silver, according to their skill, All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say to these idols that they've made uh, 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 concerning them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves that had been created, and therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from uh, a chimney. And so God is saying, you're going to pass away here now, uh, because of your idolatry. And so there, the very first part of chapter 13, verse 1, when, I, when Ephraim spoke uh, 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 trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. And speaking of a day in the history of the northern kingdom of, uh, uh, of Israel and the Jewish people as a whole, when they spoke, people listened to them. When they... Uh, when they spoke, the nations around them trembled at, at the the might and the favor of God upon uh, Israel at one time in their uh, history, and they had that kind. They were esteemed in that way by the pagan nations around them. But in their sin, they had thrown all of that away. Until until now, at this point, nobody fears them. Uh, at uh, at all. It certainly reminds me uh, of our country and the danger that uh, we're in uh, presently. We've spent since the 1960's at least, sixty years frittering away uh, all of the blessings, all of the esteem of the world toward this nation in terms of a, a place of freedom and righteousness and all of this, uh, these kind of things, things that made it unique in all of the world, made it great in many, many ways. But you spend 60 years playing games. You spend 60 years living off of the godly character and the blessings of a, in a nation, of the godly character of former generations, and then pretty soon you, um, uh, you don't have any more chips to play. And that's where we are. We have frittered away the esteem of this nation in the world by playing around with idolatry, playing around with sin, playing around with God. Until one day, and the good thing that comes out of that is that uh, this nation will wake up and realize this is not a game. This is a dangerous world that we live in and you want bad guys to fear you. You want bad guys to esteem you highly. You want bad guys to look and say, don't mess with them. And they had frittered all of that away in the same way that I fear in large part uh, we have, at least uh, with current uh, leadership. And so uh, here is this, uh, this history that they had with God and uh, and that they would be tempted then to abandon God for all of these idols in the light of their history made them even more uh, guilty. And again, if you can make it, they were making all of these idols, if you can make something, it's less than you by virtue of the fact that you can make it. And if it's less than you, why would we bother worshiping it? The folly of it. But they say, well, wait a second. Let the men, uh, the men who uh, sacrifice kiss the calves. It doesn't matter what a, a human beings or a nation or people ascribe to something that they have made some idol. It's still a folly. It's a figment of our imagination. It's nothing in the eyes of God. It doesn't make anything powerful because we think that it's powerful or because we say that it's powerful only God is powerful, and only God is, is God um, in the world, and they had uh, thrown him off for all of this nonsense, and he then said, therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and, uh, that passes away so quickly, especially in the summer as the heat comes out, and uh, certainly they have nice summers in the Middle East. And then, like the early dew that passes away so quickly upon the sunrise, like chaff blown off the threshing floor, just blown away in smoke from uh, the chimney, and that uh, dispels so quickly into the air. And God says, "You're going to pass away. Yes, I am the Lord your God. Uh, ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no god but me, for there is no savior." but me. And the Lord, uh, this is called black and white clarity. You got all these silly things all set up? Made them out of gold. Woo! You're going to be walking on that in heaven. And you put them on big high stands and you put all of this religious rigmarole all the way around it. They're nothing. I am the Lord your God ever since Egypt and you shall know no God uh, but me for there is no Savior besides me. These things cannot save you. They cannot save you. And He's he's speaking to a nation that is about to be utterly destroyed and taken captive by the Assyrians. There is a sword hanging over their heads and He's letting them know, no one can save you from the mess you're in except Me. And it's, it's a loving thing on His part to say that. And, and even as we would sometimes make a mess of our own life, knowing better, raised in the church, or at least raised a part of our lifetime uh, in the church as an adult, and we go off and do some kind of a thing and make a mess uh, of all of it, and then we realize, wow, I was so smart, I've gotten myself in a situation in that nobody else in the world, not myself, not the whole world together, can deliver me from. And it's not the end of the world. If I'll realize and turn to God at that moment and say, "You're the only one that can get me out of this, would you get me out of this? And that's what the Lord is trying to nudge them uh, 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 toward. And He said, "I knew you in the wilderness, in the land in uh, the land of great drought." When they had pasture, uh, they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted, and therefore they uh, forgot me. God said, I've been faithful and faithful and faithful to you, and then you became prosperous, and you forgot me in your prosperity. Life is a a funny thing, the Christian life as well, but there are mountaintops and there are valleys in, uh, in, in life, and in terms of our relationship with the Lord, as much as we hate it, the healthiest place is to be in a valley. To be in a deep trial, to be in deep spiritual warfare, to be in a deep, hard place. Because we don't mess around with God then. We, we give Him our obedience. We give Him our attention. We realize He's the only one that can get us out of this. We want to be right with Him. Ah, then you get two bucks in your pocket, or two hundred bucks in your pocket, or whatever it might be, and then, with a little bit of prosperity, then he starts to take the second kind of place in life, and all of these other things come to the forefront and uh, and then we begin to walk with him from a distance, and then oftentimes the Lord will bring us back down into the valley to get us back into that place but i after all of these years in my own life as a Christian, I finally have reached a place where I'm smart enough. It didn't happen this morning, it's been recent, uh, uh, though, recent years, where in seasons of prosperity in my life, where I say, Lord, this is so sweet of a season. I mean, this is really a blessing. And I'm not talking about materially, spiritually, relationships, everything. And then to say, Lord, I realize this is a season of prosperity in my life. I want to walk with You in this with an intimacy and a closeness and a sobriety that I would if I were in the middle of the deepest trial. In other words, I don't want prosperity to move me from it. And yet, prosperity is the most challenging environment to maintain this kind of intimacy with God and and obedience. It was for them, it is yet today. And so I will be to them, God said, like a lion. I think I like shepherd better, but this is where they were in terms of things. I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road, I will lurk, and I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I don't want to meet a bear deprived of anything. Uh, much less her cubs. I know that upsets her. And uh, that's why I, I stay in cities. <laughs> One, a fellow took me up into the Sierras. It was a, a trip uh, by horseback up into Kennedy Meadows or something like that. I've never been back since. And uh, we went up there. One of the horses went lame. And so we had to come down uh, at dark in the middle of the night. And um, and the drop-offs are just sheer on both sides and everything. And this, I, like I write, the last horse I had read was at, ridden was at Knott's Berry Farm. And, uh, and he had to get on the lame horse, and he put me on Mr. Excitement up at the front, who wouldn't let the other horse lead. And so, and I'm there, and he says, now, now keep your legs out in, in front like this and tilt back. To help the, the the horse, you know, in terms of going down uh, the way that it is, and I, I walked like this for like three weeks. I was so sore by the time I got down to the bottom, and uh, he noticed I was a little bit anxious about just these sheer drop-offs, and he consoled me. He said, "The horse doesn't want to die any more than you do," <laughs> and uh, and uh, and so it was that that it happened, and. and uh, but, uh, anyway, what does it have to do with bears? We were way up there and, uh, and put everything up in the air because of the bears and all of this kind of thing. He had a gun. He said, I won't bother giving you a gun at all. If you shot it, you'd just make them angry. And, uh, and we did see quite a few bears and, and the, the whole cub routine and everything. And uh, that was great. I, I, I only needed to do that one time. Now I, now I like a nice coffee shop. and. Uh, So, I will meet them like a bear bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open her rib cage. uh, In other words, uh, uh, certain death. And then I will devour them like a lion. Uh, A wild beast shall tear them. God said, I'm going to judge you with the Assyrians. And this is the severity of the judgment that is coming your way. O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from Me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you at all, uh, save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. You remember the children of Israel? They didn't want to live in a theocracy. They wanted to have a monarchy, they wanted to have a king. Uh, uh, like all of the other nations, God gave him a king by the name of Saul. It was his permissive will, not his perfect will. And ultimately, God had to remove Saul and replace him with, uh, with David. But this, uh, now at this time in Israel's history, they're trusting in their political leaders to get them out of the fix that they're in. Uh, they're judges and they're kings. And God says, your problems are way beyond what any judge or leader or king can fix uh, in terms of what you've put together, uh, your help is only from uh, from me. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. Her sin is uh, stored up. and, uh, And God is saying here that it's kind of like bringing grain in. You put the grain into the sacks, you record how many sacks there are, and then you put them in storage. And God says, I've stored all of your sins. I'm aware of your sins. And it's all been noted, and uh, the judgment, uh, every sin is going to be judged. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come uh, upon him, speaking of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so he likens Israel. To being there to help his wife in childbirth, and then right where she needs him uh, uh, to be there, he heads off and goes uh, uh, someplace and and does and is of no help um, in uh, in the birth. It, uh, at all. And so, uh, the, the, the lack of wisdom on their part. And then, and then, of course, in childbirth the pangs get worse and worse. There's no stopping, God is saying, uh, uh, the birth of this judgment that's going to occur. He's an, uh, uh, an unwise son, for He uh, should not stay long where the children are born. I will ransom them from the power uh, of the grave, I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be, I will be um, your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden uh, from my eyes. And so uh, the Lord calls on uh, death and the grave to come forth and do their dreadful work in judgment. You might recognize that uh, verse fourteen. The Apostle Paul quotes these verses in that great chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15. But then as he, he, he quotes it uh, uh, there, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? In other words, he quotes them uh, these things that were, uh, are such an enemy to mankind in seeking to destroy as being defeated in Jesus Christ, when he writes, "...but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." And though He is fruitful among His brethren, an east wind, speaking of Assyria, which lay to the east of Uh, of uh, Israel, an east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and then His spring shall become dry and His fountain shall be dried up. And so the great damage that Assyria would do to the land, it would dry up the land, and then Assyria will plunder the uh, treasury of every desirable prize. Uh, Samaria is uh, held guilty, for she has rebelled against her Lord, they shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child will be ripped open. And here is God simply acknowledging the cruelty of the Assyrian military in those days towards the people that they uh, conquered. And yet even the threat of, of the, the uh, horrible violence of the Assyrians uh, could not and would not get them to turn from their sin. I mean, talk about re- being committed to your sin. And then in uh, chapter 14 is God's, a final call to repent in order that he might be able to rec- receive them back to himself and to his blessings. And, uh, and, and here, again, the heart of God comes out uh, to the forefront again. His desire for them. Oh, Israel. And uh, uh, he should have called them Jacob, but he called them Israel. Uh, he, you know, he's hoping for the best here, so to speak. Return. To the Lord your God, repent, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now see, he's laid this entire case out concerning their guilt. They, they can't make a peep against the charges that he's made against them. And so he says, look at what your sin has made of you, and, and worse is yet to come. And he said, take words with you and return to the Lord, say to Him. So he says there in verse 1, return, and then in verse 2, say to Him. And God wants to make this so simple. They're so far away from Him. They probably don't even know how to remember to pray to God, to talk to God, to to wonder if they can approach God in the light of what they've done. And so God says, return to Me, and say to me, and then God gives them the prayer. If they couldn't come up with a prayer to express express their repentance, God says, I'll even give that to you in order for this to happen. And say to Him, to the Lord, take away my iniquity. And in this we have the confession of sin, of being guilty of iniquity. Receive us Uh, graciously the acknowledgement that we are now completely dependent upon your grace if you give us what it is that we deserve we have no hope we have only hope in your grace but god gives them this prayer it's not a wish it's what god wanted to do for we will offer the sacrifices of our uh, lips. And, and here you have uh, this grace that they are saying, if you give us this grace and show us this grace, Lord, we will respond in worship to you. Assyria shall not save us. And Uh, we will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, You are our gods. They renounce all their sin and their idolatry, for uh, in You the fatherless finds mercy. Again, Lord, our only hope is in You. Now, why would God give them uh, a, a prayer like this and then put this prayer in the Bible for any of us to use if we need to return to the Lord tonight, except that He has every intention of honoring a prayer like this if we come to Him and pray something like this and mean it. He's so gracious. He just is not just will, not willing to give up on, on, uh, on them. And then He says to them, I will uh, heal your uh, uh, backsliding. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from him. So God says, If you do this, I will heal your backsliding. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To heal your backsliding. What does that mean? Except that anytime we backslide, we are damaged. We are wounded as a result of it. Damage takes place within our life. Spiritually, our relationship with God is damaged. Our intimacy with God uh, is uh, uh, damaged. The grieving, the quenching of the Holy Spirit within, within our lives. Certainly, our prayer life is damaged. Certainly, our ability to lift holy hands and worship to the Lord is damaged. And then there's all the emotional damage that can occur, all of the mental damage that can occur in in backsliding, all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the condemnation, the loss of innocence that is there. And yet, God said, if you repent, I will heal all of those wounds. That That's just an astonishing promise. And and every backslider, everybody in the position of Israel, God God knows the confidence that a person will need not to produce a desire to leave their sin or their uh, uh, their, their life of backsliding. Now they want to. But what will be God's response to me if I do that." And God said, "'I will not only receive you, but I will heal your backsliding, and I will love them freely, for My anger has turned away from Him. I will be like the dew to Israel, and she and he shall grow like a lily, I'll make uh, Israel beautiful again and lengthen His roots like Lebanon. I'll restore stability into her life. His branches shall uh, spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. Uh, it, 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 there'll be a, a, a return of prosperity. His fragrance shall be uh, like uh, Lebanon. This is beyond the necessity. I'll, I'll add a fragrance even to uh, to His life. Beauty, joy, blessing in, um, in life. And those who dwell under His shadow, speaking about the nation of Israel, people returning to Israel in a repentant spa- uh, state, those who uh, dwell under His shadow shall return, and they shall be revived like grain and grow uh, like a vine. Their scent shall be like Uh, the wine of Lebanon. And Ephraim uh, shall say, uh, What have I uh, to do any more with idols? I have heard and observed him. I, uh, 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 I am like a great cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. And so God looks all the way down through their history, beyond the Assyrian captivity, and, uh, and slaughter, and then beyond the Babylonian captivity to the day that they would return back into the land, and, and while they were in these foreign captivities, the day that they would turn away from their idolatry, where they would say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I'm done with them. And the fascinating thing about the Babylonian captivity, the final captivity of both the northern and southern kingdom, is that when Israel came back into the land for all of their faults, they were cured of their idolatry. And God, in essence, in sending them to Babylon, said, you like idols? You like idols, do you? I will send you to the land of idols. I will send you to the place where they worship more idols than you can count. You'll have idols coming out of your nose. You want idolatry? I'll fix you. I'll give you all the idolatry you want. And then I'll put you in the middle of a nation and watch the quality of person that is created by these idols. And that'll be a cure for your idolatry. And it was a cure to this uh, very uh, day. And when God says, I heard and obs- have heard and observed Him, I am like a green cypress tree, your fruit... Uh, is found in me. God is witnessing to the fact that her repentance, Israel's repentance, as a result of this, was a genuine repentance. And then God closes here with the lessons of uh, the book in verse 9. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble uh, in them. And so the lesson is, number one, the ways of the Lord are always right. The second lesson is that the righteous will always walk in them. And third, transgression, transgressors will stumble in them. And, and everyone will prove. Everyone will prove the veracity, or the truthfulness of God's Word from one angle uh, or another. It will always prove true in human history and every human life. But it will either be proven true from the vantage point of obeying Him and the blessings brought into our life as a result of obedience, or it will be proven true by rebelling against Him and then incurring His chastening. But nobody escapes the fact that God's Word will have the final say in every uh, every human uh, life. And it's the wise person that chooses to prove God true from the vantage point of righteousness and not wickedness. And when he says uh, there in verse 9, who is wise? Now he enlarges the lesson of the book of Hosea, knowing we would be studying it tonight. He enlarges the lesson of the book of Hosea from just Israel to everyone who ever reads the book. This is the lesson to learn from the northern kingdom of Israel in this awful, awful season within uh, within their history. So the book of Hosea is a beautiful book. And the reason it's beautiful is because God wins. He wins. And when God wins, we win, individually or as a group. And so often I think people think about Hosea and say, like, oh, that's where God like clubbed him to death. I mean, that's an awful thing. No. That'd be to misunderstand the book entirely. God laid out in graphic detail as we've seen in the last few weeks who and what they were to where anyone could look and say, God would have been absolutely justified in having nothing to do with them ever again for their violation of his heart and the relationship with him that they had committed themselves to. And then the wonder of wonders is that while he had every right to do that and to be done with her, he didn't do that because his grace and His love and His commitment to them was greater than their sin. And He knew that with chastening, they would one day return to Him. And so we stop. I don't know what your life is like with God, but God has been very gracious to me, and He has been very good to me. And I won't say that like I'm a serial killer or something like that. I don't want you to say, oh man, what's this guy into? What's he doing out of prison? The way he talks about. But there's enough related to all of our lives where we know we've hurt the heart of God. We know He's been so good to us. We know He's delivered us out of Egypt. We know He's prospered us. We know, and our response hasn't always been great related to that. And we've given Him a million opportunities to say, I'm just done with you and yet He doesn't. His grace is greater than all of our sins, as that chorus goes. And that's the truth of it. What an amazing God that we serve and and, uh, worship, and what an amazing way that He reveals the greatness of His love in this book of Hosea. I'm going to ask us just to remain seated. I'd like the worship team to come forward, and I'm very well aware of the time. But I'd like them just to lead us in one worship song before we stand and close in prayer and then end in in our closing song. Just an opportunity for us to just praise God tonight for how gracious He has been to us, how committed He has been to this relationship even when we were far less than uh, committed to it, whether for an hour or for a day or a year or ten years. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, as we stand before you tonight. We just acknowledge that we are trophies of your grace, that our lives are to the praise of the glory of your grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your commitment to the relationship that we have with you. And thank you, Lord, that what you have begun in us, you will be faithful to bring to completion. We praise you, Lord, with our verbal prayer here tonight. But we pray and ask that you would look at the humble thanks within our hearts for how good you have been to us as your people. And we thank you tonight In Jesus' name, amen. If you stand here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, we'll be up in front immediately after the service, and we would love to pray with you to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ this evening. If you need prayer for anything this evening, we'd also love to pray with you and for you as well. Trinity, would you...